Hashtag Pistons Podcast, take two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Joe, I'm your host. As usual, I'm joined by Kuka Hill. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore truck. You can find him on Twitter at Kuka Hill NBA. We have a special guest with us today from the Detroit News. We have Rod Beard. You can find him on Twitter at Date News Rod Beard. That's D-E-T News Rod Beard. He is, of course, the Detroit Pistons beat writer for the Detroit News. Uh, he is the proprietor of Hashtag Start Writing and also the highest followed of the beat writers on Twitter. We're very happy to have him here today. Um, we're going to pretty much jump right into it. So the first thing that I want to ask Rod about is something that me and Koo talked about a little bit on the last podcast. And it's that, uh, so they're obviously heading into the all-star break. There was a pretty significant improvement in a lot of things with the team, but in particular with the way the offense looked. And there's a few different people who have sort of pushed back on the idea that it was the coaching staff who made that change. In particular, Vince Ellis has really pushed back on that, saying that, you know, the players have had the freedom to do a lot of these things before in the season. And that what really happened is they just kind of decided, you know, we're going to do this different now. And I'm just curious what you think on that, Rod. Is it more of, well, they kind of could have done this all season just because that's how Casey's system is set up? Or was there a concerted effort from the coaching staff to do things like less Andre post-ups, more sort of screen and roll from him, um, let Reggie Jackson run in the pick and roll a little bit more? Or was it really just the players just kind of decided, we can do this now? I'll, I'll cop out and say that it was a combination of things. And uh, they do a read and react. It is on the point guard or whoever's uh, initiating the offense to kind of figure out what they want to do. Dwayne Casey calls significantly fewer plays than Stan Van Gundy did. He really does want them to look at the situation and see what's there. Uh, and at times he'll call some plays, but it feels like he's calling fewer plays now and just letting Reggie Jackson go and do what he can do. And anybody who's watched the Pistons at, at any length can tell you that Reggie didn't look good in the first part of the season because he was more of a spot-up shooter instead of a pick-and-roll initiator. Now you can see he's got that burst and that juice when he's the the uh, dribbler and initiator of a pick-and-roll, and he can get by a guy. He can make it to a corner. He can make that floater go where he wasn't. And now he's adding in that spot-up three that I think it was 40-some percent that he was shooting. When you do those things and you do it at the clip that he's doing it, yes, your offense is going to look better. Even for Andre Drummond, he's more efficient and taking the shots that are closer to the rim, that he makes a little bit more frequently. It's not that hook that's right on the block that you just sort of say, what the heck was that? He's almost cut the threes out of his arsenal completely. So it's just finding what that sweet spot is and the things that they do best. They're really honing in on those things. And again, it doesn't hurt that Blake Griffin's hitting some upper 40% from three either. So it's it's all been, um, in these past couple of weeks, really, really good. Well, I think we might have just lost Rod. There he went. Koo, are you still here? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Well, we'll see if we, <laughs> we'll see if we can get him back in. Um, Koo, say something about what he was just saying there. I'll see if I can get him back in. I want to restart it again. Uh, yeah, me and Joe already pretty much talked about it in the last pods, but yeah, Reggie Jackson has been playing a lot better as of late, and it has a lot to do with uh, what I believe the change in offense, and it also has a lot to do with the fact that you know he didn't have an off season to get healthy, and like we said last time, Arnie Kander, the former head trainer of the Pistons staff, and he's now I believe like a consultant or something. He 
I said that he worked with Reddy Jackson before the season said it's probably going to be taken till January till he does uh till he gets back to normal, gets back to full strength and you start seeing him out how he is. So um yeah, it doesn't it makes kind of it makes some sense now that Reddy Jackson looks a lot better. Oh, we just got Rod. Yeah. Rod, you hear us? Oh, well, I'll continue. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it makes sense that he's looking a lot better now, along with the fact that Dwayne Casey, I believe, has changed some of the offense and helped him out. Oh, Rod, can you hear us? Okay. Cool. Okay, you can go ahead. I was just filling in yeah. while you were gone. Yeah, you, you dropped out right after you talked about Reggie Jackson getting more um, in the pick and roll a little bit and how Dwayne Casey's been calling actually less plays recently, you think. Yeah, and, and Casey's just been calling fewer plays, I think, and letting the guys, and that, that's been from the beginning of the year. He calls fewer plays than Stan Van Gundy did. But Reggie is just um, really focused on the pick and rolls and things that he does well. And this is a, a discussion I've had with Dwayne Casey one on one. It's just kind of where's the, the sweet spot of Reggie Jackson and calling pick and roll plays for him or doing more 1 4 or 1 5 stuff with him and uh, Blake Griffin or Andre Drummond. And um, him just finding his spot in the offense. And it was just sort of, you gotta, you gotta do your best to find that sweet spot. And I think that's where they are now is this is the sweet spot. This is where it's looking good, where um, Reggie's hitting better from three point range as a spot up shooter, where Blake is hitting 40 some percent as a spot up three point shooter. When those things are happening, then it's going to make everything look a lot yeah. better. And I mean, we talked about this yesterday, Koo, but you know, for all of our I, Rod, I'm sure you don't really listen to this, but we've not always been the biggest fans of Dwayne Casey, but for all of our complaints, and we talked about this, one big thing that's changed is that regardless of his use, Reggie Jackson has just played a lot better too. I mean, he shot a lot better from three. Um, I know you guys have all talked a lot about how all season the the Pistons have been able to create lots of open threes. The issue has been they just haven't been able to hit them. And, you know, he's shot a lot better over that stretch. So, you know, as much as we can say that the change in system has helped, it is it, a big thing is just that, you know, Reggie Jackson's just played better. Um, but one thing that I think really is a big thing with putting the ball in Jackson's hands a little bit more, particular in the pick and roll, like you said, um, is that I think that that really helps to sort of, I guess you could say, unlock Andre Drummond as well. That was the thing to me that always was the big difference is that, letting Jackson run pick and roll isn't just about getting Reggie Jackson going. It's just as much about getting Andre Drummond going. And that has really been a big difference. Although he's also played way better on defense lately, I think too. Um, and I guess that's one other thing that I'd kind of like to get your, your take on is that, okay, we always, you know, us blog boys, we're all on the outside looking in. And so what do you think, do you think that, um, Andre's better play lately. Do you think that's just as simple as him being out of being more focused, playing with better effort, or just sort of what's your take on all that? Well, we asked him about it the other day, and he said it was he probably just needs to get hit in the head a little bit more, which is a, a tip of the cap to the, the concussion protocol he was in, that it focused him a little bit more. But I think a lot of it is he's running, he's doing more rim running. And that's the thing that he does absolutely best. We saw that in the Stan Van Gundy years and certainly with Reggie Jackson that pairing does well. That's the best thing that they do is rim run and run pick and roll stuff. So when you make Reggie a spot up shooter, you take the ball out of his hands. And and for the most part, rightfully so, if he doesn't, if he can't get past the defender and they can defend the, the pick and roll with Reggie Jackson, 
without the, the big man having to step up and to do very much of anything, then it's not as effective at all. But when you have Andre Drummond in a pick and roll, it's much more efficient, much more effective than him getting on the block and just throwing up a turnaround hook or trying to get in the lane and do something else. Uh, and, and when you figure out what your best role is, what your best usage is, and you do just that, it's going to drive all of your numbers up. It's going to make everything work so much more efficiently and effectively. And that's what we see now. I think with Drummond, though, it is um, really crashing the board's heart, really giving that energy and that effort. And when he does that, the eye test tells you, you can see that very clearly. The days that he's going to bring it and the days that he just doesn't have it quite as much, you can very readily tell the difference in those days. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Rod, I wanted to uh, – actually, I just want to let Rod know how I feel about that whole subject we're talking about uh, with Dwayne Casey and the offense and all of that. Um, so how Joe asked you, I just want to give you my uh, spot on it. Um, so I understand, like, ready, uh, Dwayne Casey likes to likes to give his players more freedom and wants them to, like, read the defense and decide on their own, which is all fine. I mean – Everyone likes to have a little bit more freedom to do what they want to do. But me and Joe have talked about this sometimes, like earlier on in the year on the podcast, that when you have it like that, it enables some players to fall back on their – it enables some players to have a higher chance of falling back on some bad habits in the offense. If you have no structure and you just let them go out there and roll the balls out and just say, here you go, do what you think is best. So my big thing with all the – well, the players had a chance to do this all along was – well, yeah, that's fair, but you're still the head coach. If you see something that's not working and you see something that would work, you could at least like go out there and say, hey, mate, this isn't working. I know I want you guys to go out there and play freely, but we should probably do this more. This isn't working as well, blah, blah, blah. You feel me? Like, like, that's yeah, why and I, I think there's some there, – I think there's merit to that, but on the other side of that, it's, it's what we talked about earlier, is if those things were working, the Pistons got the open looks that they wanted in Casey's system – you don't feel like you need to change very much yeah. of anything because the looks are there. It's just those shots need to fall. And we're what, uh, 50 some games into this that 50, yeah, we're 50 some games into it. And if it hadn't worked up to that point, then yeah, it is kind of, we need to do something different. We got to figure out some other way to make this work. And maybe he calls a few more plays to try to get some actions going, but you can see just in looking at the offense from the beginning of the year to the actions that they're running now, they've, added some new things and some some bells and whistles to make the offense flow a little bit better it's just what works you you don't have a good sense of what works besides the things that they've done that have gotten them open shots it's just when do those start to fall uh, i think we lost him again cool keep talking to him we'll get him back yeah. <laughs> okay okay I got, I got you but yeah just continuing i guess i'll just continue with what i'm saying i was going to ask Rod this too after he was done talking but he mentioned that, you know, Reddy Jackson just – if he wasn't playing good enough or he wasn't feeling good enough or he wasn't 100% and all that, if he's not playing well, then the pick and rolls – the pick and roll will easily be defended and all that. But I was going to ask Rod, well, I understand – along with Reddy Jackson just not playing well because he's not 100% or if he's just not playing well to start the season, whatever it was, I was going to say, well, you know, we've also seen an uptick in just other ways to get Andre rolling to the, rolling to the rim. We've seen a lot more 4-5 pick and roll, which – I've been asking for all season with uh, Griffin and Dre. We've seen a couple. Uh, we talked about it last podcast. We've seen a couple uses of the Spain pick and roll. I just feel like over the past, like since January twenty fifth, I don't know. I believe it was some one of the uh, beat writers tweeted this out. But since twenty fifth, 
January 25th, Andres has been playing extraordinary uh, well, and his uh, his field goal percentage is extremely high. So I feel like it's just been a concerted effort to try to get him rolling to the rim more, not just with Reddy Jackson, but just to get Andre more effective as a player, which would obviously lead to more Pistons success. Now, I was going to say, we've seen it with Luke Kennard. They tried to do it a little bit with Reggie Bullock. They've done different uh, variations of it with different guys. So it's not just one four or one five. Uh, they've done it with, or four or five. They've done it with other guys too, just to get him going. Cause I think that's the best that Andre Drummond that you can have. He's not going to be shooting threes. He's not going to shoot free throw line extended jumpers are not the key to unlocking the ceiling to his game right now. It really is getting him in role situations where the defender has to figure out what they want to do, but it has to be a penetrator and facilitator that threatens the defense. And that's better with this Reggie Jackson, with Luke Kennard, with Blake Griffin, certainly to do that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, me and Koo have talked about this, but one of our favorite stats we brought up earlier in the year and then that has been different is um, before he went out with the concussion protocol stuff, Andre Drummond was only getting assisted on like 51% Mm -hmm. of his buckets, which is about the same number that uh, Joel Embiid has. Like people want to compare him to other, you know, quote unquote, rim running centers like uh, Clint Capella, Rudy Gobert, Steven Adams, DeAndre Jordan. But when you look at the amount of offense that he was asking to create for himself, it wasn't even close. All those other guys are at least in the 60s, some of them in the 70s. And since he's come back, he's been assisted on like 65, 66% of his buckets. And it's just been so clearly, you look at the numbers and the eye test, it's just so clearly such a significant improvement, I think. And I think everybody can agree with that, that it really was a good improvement in the offense. And it's going to be important for them to uh, to keep that up, I think, in the it going down the stretch. Um, then to sort of transition then into the next thing, I guess. Um, so the trade deadline happened, obviously. The Pistons traded away Reggie Bullock for Svi, Mikhailik, and a second-round pick. And then with that, Rod, because you're obviously more connected than us, um, do you think, based on what you'd heard, do you think that's about the max value that they could have gotten back for Reggie Bullock, or do you think they could have maybe shopped around and gotten a little bit? Well, Just, I've heard that they were, try- they were looking for uh, a late first but you, you just can't get that in that market. It's going to be really hard to do, especially since some of the other shooting guards had already gone and set what the market was going to be, um, that it was just going to be hard to get more than that. They, then they were getting two seconds, and they said, well, two seconds doesn't do anything for us right now when you are losing a starter and you've got to start sort of backfill all of those positions. We, they wanted to get somebody who could be a prospect that they could have a name and say, hey, we like this guy now. We like the way that he can play maybe in the future. And when they looked at Svi, that was what was there. Good size at 6'8", even a little bit taller than Reggie Bullock, maybe even a little bit more athletic and can put the ball on the floor. But it, the thought was we'd rather have a, a body, a person, uh, because you would have had to call somebody up from the G League or maybe get a 10-day or figure something else out but they wanted a body to fit and slide in right there and get another draft pick because they didn't have any more picks from any second round picks from 2020 to 2023. So they want to start rebuilding that arsenal of assets and try to get some pieces in there. So I, I think they were looking optimistically that they could get a late first round, but then just looked at the market and said, Hey, two seconds is fine, but we'd rather have a guy in a second. And I think they did pretty well in that trade for, for what they were going to have to do. Okay. so. Basically, I guess this is something that a lot of people will want to, or at least be be happy to hear. 
is that that is something like they were doing their due diligence. They didn't just go up. Oh, there's our trade. And they pulled the trigger. Like they, they looked around a bunch, you know, they did their, because there are a few people, some of whom me and Koo even really like who were pretty upset about that trade. And we're pretty convinced that they just pulled the trigger on Bullock for not nearly enough, but you definitely saw making it sound like they really, they looked around a lot. They tried to get a first round pick. It just wasn't happening, so they got what they felt was the best package. Right. It's the best package for it, but then you have to look at the entire plan of what they were trying to do because they said in the very beginning they were trying to get enough cap space available to get in the buyout market. They didn't know it was going to be Wayne Ellington that was available, but they wanted to create that $2.5 or so that they'd be able to, to look at least and try to figure out what might be there. So. You you, cre- you do the Bullock trade first, you get about a million in cap space, you do the Stanley trade for Thon Maker, you create another million in cap space, and they were a little bit less than a, a half million away from the luxury tax line anyway. So in the two trades, you create enough space that you can go out and, and be active on the buyout market and get anybody, at least try, but you couldn't do it if you didn't have that uh, that space so it was important to do both of those trades to create space and wiggle room just so you had an opportunity. The million and a half is the vet minimum, but they were that counts against the cap. So they at least needed that much. They created enough where they could go out and get a Wayne Ellington that can really possibly help them for this playoff run these last 26 games. Yeah, and I'm, me and Kubo both agreed with this that, you know, I think that they definitely did a good job of sort of walking the line between setting themselves up so that they're in a good position going forward, but at the same time, not totally throwing away this season, right? So I would say most people probably agree they are worse now than they were before the deadline. Um, Essentially, in your rotation, you replace Bullock with Wayne Ellington, hypothetically. Bullock's better than Wayne Ellington, I'd say. Uh, But they still, it's not like they traded away all their guys and they're screwed now, you know? So I think they did a pretty good job of walking that line. Um, the one other thing, well, I, oh, I think the one issue now, and this is going to be critical, is the small forward position defensively is what they lack now. They don't have a six seven type guy who can go out and guard just regular small forwards. Now you're you're putting that onus on Luke Kennard, on Wayne Ellington, and Ellington in his defense a little bit didn't wasn't really in shape to come out and play those first couple of games and to play extended minutes, and he didn't have good timing with those guys. You can see on the DHOs that he was bumping in the guys and trying to figure out where he should be in in some things. He's still thinking the plays instead of reacting and it being a lot more natural. So that's going to get better. But defensively, I think, and and we saw that in those last couple of games is they don't have anybody that can guard the wizards, six, seven, six, eight guys, six, six guys that are athletic. And that's going to be a problem as they go down the stretch and maybe even into the playoffs is who's that defensive guy who guards that, opposing two guard or that three that is really going to like a, a Chris Middleton. If they play the bucks in the playoffs, who guards Chris Middleton that you feel confident and comfortable with? I don't know. And that's, that's the big void that was left. So you, they did get some, some uh, roster stability, some contracts that are more manageable, but they have a big, big gaping hole at that three spot defensively. Yeah. <laughs> Joe asked him. <laughs> Uh, Koo, you can you can ask. This is this is you asking Koo. Alright, so Rod, I don't know if you know this or not, but like I'm the Brian Windhorse of Stanley Johnson. Like I'm the 
I'm like the leader of his ship. I'm the, his biggest fan. It is what it is. But pretty much, I, I want to ask this question. Do you, me and Joe talked about that on our last pod, and I've talked about that all year. Um, Joe has joined in with me on it. But my big thing was with Stanley and just a small forward spot in general. The Pistons really, outside of Stanley, didn't have another small forward. I mean, you can say Reggie Bullock was, but he's not – I mean, he's okay defensively, but he's not blowing anybody away, and he's he's capable of being um, taken to taken to work on offense by some people we've seen before. But outside of Stanley, we didn't really have any of the small forward, and we definitely don't have anybody close to him on perimeter defense now that he's gone. My thing was, yeah, his offense, he's struggling to come along on offense, but his defense is so valuable to us if we're trying to win right now and make the playoffs. Without him, I just don't see anybody else on this team that has any kind of chance to guard, like you said, anybody that's right. like six six, six seven, Jeff Greens, uh, since you brought up Wizards. Just like I, I don't see anybody else that has a chance. So my my question to you, Rod, was do you believe that that was the right choice? Because I can't – I don't want to ma- – I try to not make it my opinion very much known anymore because I know I'm biased and I didn't want to see Stanley go because I wanted him to work out here. But I really – I'm, I'm – I made a video talking about how successful our trade deadline was. I believe we really did do a good job of killing two birds with one stone. But I do, I still question whether moving Stanley was the right decision if we wanted to try to make the playoffs now. Because I seriously don't see even anybody that has the chance of trying to guard anybody at anybody that's up like above six six. Yeah, I, I think that's a valid point. That um, I can see trading either one. Because you can still be functional without the other, but it is if if Svee was ready and Svee could be in the rotation right now and be that offensive guy who could um, either start or play a bigger chunk of minutes, then I would think that that would be okay. But he's yeah he he's he's just not there yet. If Svee could be a guy who could play that big chunk of minutes and maybe not even start, but just play a big chunk of minutes, then I would be okay with it. He's just not that. And so you lose both of your guys that have those big six seven six eight bodies. You lose your best three-point shooter in Bullock. You lose your best defensive perimeter guy in Stanley. So if you made one, one trade or the other trade, I think it would be okay. But the fact that you made both made a big gaping hole uh, defensively and then offensively because now Wayne Ellington has to come in and be that guy. And, and he's 6'5", but he doesn't obviously have a Stanley Johnson body. He doesn't have the... Um, Reggie Bullock's size. So they've got to just piece something together. And people were, were clamoring for Luke Kennard to get more playing time and to be the starter. He's not going to start. I mean, that's that's not breaking news. Luke, They want Luke Kennard to, to stay with that second group. He functions better with the second group. And for whatever reason, when he gets on the court with Blake and Drummond, he just gets lost in the sauce somewhere. It's, it's, it's the, the weirdest thing. And I've asked him about it kind of What's the difference with those guys? And he said, well, yeah, it's you're, you're going to it's it doesn't spread the court out as much. You've got Blake who's going to need the ball. He wants to be on the post. Some drum is going to be in the post. It's not as free to run around as when you've got Ish and uh, Ellington and Kennard and Galloway uh, out on the court with Zaza setting screens for you. That It's just a different look when you've got that second group out there and they have different goals and a different offense. Well, Joe, I just got one another question for Rod. Um, but I don't know if you know anything about this, Rod, or if you can say anything about this. But um, Joe has mentioned to me, like when the trade first went down, that you know 
it's part, it was a mutual thing, kind of like the Pistons wanted to move on from Stanley, and Stanley wanted to move on from the Pistons. Have you heard? Did you hear anything, or do you know of anything that would suggest that Stanley, like, you know, wanted out from Detroit or wanted just like a new scene, change of scenery to give himself a better chance that it was ready to move on from Detroit? I get that sense. I, I don't hear. I didn't hear anything directly to that. Um in that direction. But I I get that sense that he just felt like he wasn't going to be a starter. He wasn't going to get to have the offensive role and it just wasn't working here. Maybe he needed a different uh, coach and a different scene to, to get everything going. Uh, The team didn't say anything to that specific uh, point, but uh, Ed Stefanski did say something about Thon maker that you can read into it, that they wanted a guy who's going to run up and down the court with enthusiasm, who's going to try hard every play, who's going to hit a corner three, who's going to dunk. And it, it, when I thought about that, I just said, wait a minute, those are all the things that Stanley doesn't do well, and that's why they want it fine. So it's not directly that, but it, I think there is something, too. They felt like they weren't going to bring him back. And at a qualifying offer number of $5.3 million, if he takes that, then not only are you – adding another million to your payroll, it's a guy that you haven't found a significant fit for on the offensive end with that bench group. And I, if you look, if you ask me, I think they could have figured out a way, but I think at both sides just kind of said, hey, the writing's on the wall with this, and this isn't going to be a long-term thing, and they're not going to pay him the money that he would get on the open market. So it's the same as the Bullock thing, that if Bullock is going to get 9 or 10 or $12 million, I think that's the market for him, about 10 or $12 million. The Pistons are just priced out of that because of where they are with their cap. Okay, I got a, I got a question about Stanley. Then, as long as we're talking about him, um, so Imrod, if you don't want to say anything on this, you don't have to. But so I remember back when they drafted him, Stan Van Gundy was on a podcast with JJ Redick, and he talked about how Stanley was a guy who maybe wanted to do to do too much too fast. Um, and how they really, and then that was a big thing in his first off season, how they're like, we don't want you playing in the Drew League or anything like that. We want you to just go work on your left hand, et cetera. And then earlier this year, it may have even been you who wrote this. I read too much stuff. I get it confused <laughs> sometimes. But um, that there was a report that they were a little bit concerned about his focus on the right thing still. So clearly that's something that has sort of been a, a bugaboo for him his whole career. Is that something that you really felt was a thing with him? Because it just it seems like there's been enough sort of things I've heard. And I'm just curious what someone who is more connected to it thinks about. Well, I'll tell you about Stanley. And this is um, Stanley has been has been the guy I've been kind of most connected to because his rookie year was my first year on the beat. So that was um, we were kind of connected in that way. But he's very, very confident. He's uber confident. And people will say you've got to be that level of confident to even play in the NBA uh, or you just won't make it. But his, he always thought his game was a little bit better than what the results showed. He thought he was a better three-point shooter than the numbers showed. He thought he was a better driver and finisher than what the eye test showed. And it just never – those things never matched up that um, – the type of player that in his mind he was and the player that we all saw and what the numbers showed and everything else. But some of it was just kind of screwed up by Stan Van Gundy. And in his second year, making him the shooting guard behind KCP and which essentially put him in the corner and just made him shoot a bunch of corner threes. That's not Stanley's game. That's not his strength that you're going to just place him and make him a spot up shooter. He's got to be in transition 
in the open floor, handling the ball and getting to the rim. That's what he does best. And you can start augmenting his game with some other things year by year. But and that was that summer league also was they said, hey, you're just going to work on left. You're, you're, you're we're only going to have you driving to the left, working on your left hand and doing whatever. And that never really stuck either, that the results of that, that he was going to be this um, he can go in either direction. It really was make him go left, make him go left, make him shoot from three. And so he became this one dimensional player that if you stopped him in transition, he just wasn't as effective as he could have been. So I think that it, it just is a lot of different pieces to that, that the, the coaching staff now looked at what he had done in the past and, and figured out what they wanted him to do. And Stanley is a creature of habit. He does what he does best, and he's going to stick to that stuff. And so trying to make him a spot-up shooter, trying to make him uh, a three-point shooter in this offense was just really, really difficult when he had not improved over the first three years of his career. Okay. Koo, do you have anything else you want to ask about Stanley before we move on? <laughs> yeah, uh, of course. I want to say something on it. It, it is, You know, I love talking about Stanley. But either way, like, I, um, Rod just mentioned it, like, just real quick for everyone listening, I ranted about this, his old four-year career here, and I ranted more about it, like, at the beginning of January, mid-January. Just I was I, When I went on that rant about Dwayne Casey, I this is, this is part of the reason why, because I looked at the numbers, like, I would say mid-January, and Stanley was shooting almost eight threes per game, per 36, and whether that's like... Like, I know Vince is saying that players have the freedom to do what they want. So whether that's on the players, I guess, but I tend to think that you're the coach. If you see something that's not working, you shouldn't just let them keep doing it because you want them to have freedom. You should be doing something about it. You're the coach. It it starts and stops with you. So whether it was Dwayne Casey, Stan Van Gundy, whoever, the amount of threes that Stanley Johnson was taking, and it was like way more than half his shot attempts too were coming from three. Yep. It's just – I never understood why – like after his second season, I would say it was pretty clear that that's just not what he's going to be. It, he's after the rookie season, I knew that wasn't who he was. But if you want to try to develop it, his second season, okay, it just wasn't going to be him. But it just it was you just kept forcing it onto him, and it just seemed like that from a fan's perspective, like me, who is a real fan of Stanley, it just felt like you never it. It, you got the feeling from some fans it's like you just don't want it to work because if you're just going to keep forcing this onto him and not trying to like adjust his game to the offense or adjust the offense to his game rather you're just not you're not wanting it to work it's just you're wanting him to go out there and fail I just don't understand there should never ever be a point in time when Stanley Johnson is shooting almost eight threes a game per 36. It's just, no, it just should never, ever happen. Well, but but and, see, it, you know, it's like the Island of the Misfit Toys is that his skills, he's the only one with that skill set on this roster. There's nobody else that is not at least a decent three-point shooter and drives and has the, the body type that he has. So you've got all these other three-point shooters around him. So the offense is structured a certain way. When the ball comes to him, especially when it's a, a hand grenade and the, the shot clock is at two or one, he doesn't have a choice. And that's what defenses did a lot is they overloaded to that side. They made you pass it to Stanley with two seconds on the shot clock. And I can go back and look at this number too, but we were looking at um, the number of shot attempts that people were getting with less than four seconds on the, the shot clock. Drummond had a, a, a huge number. Like why the hell is Andre Drummond getting the ball with three or two seconds left on the shot clock? What kind of offense is that? And Stanley, I think was, I think they had six or seven guys in the top 20. 
of, of just shooting the majority of their shots or a significant number of their shots in the last four seconds of the shot clock. So I think part of that is just function of defenses knowing what they want and they're dictating to you who's going to shoot that shot. If we close out on this guy hard and Stanley's the open guy, we'll leave him open because we want him to shoot a three with two seconds left on the shot clock. And he just was forced into that a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, that was always one of the things with that I always sort of countered the whole argument of that, you know, they're getting all these open looks is that, you know, they may be getting open looks, but they're not always for the right guys. Yep. So, yeah, Stanley Johnson may be taking those may all be wide open shots, but that's because those are the shots the defense wants him to take. Yep. Right. Yep. But, yeah, I think you're mate. I remember I don't know if this is still true or not, but I know at least like in mid-December or late December or so because they showed it on the broadcast, the Pistons led the league in 24-second violations at one point. So it's definitely right in line with that. You know, defenses were able to just load up on the one thing and force the Pistons into taking shots that they kind of wanted them to take. And it was a huge issue. And, I mean, you know, that's the sort of thing that happens when, obviously, we talked about this already, but Reggie Jackson was not playing well. And then especially because Bullock was hurt for a stretch, too, I mean, especially without Bullock, the Pistons have an almost comically weak wing rotation. And that's just kind of what happens when you've got one or two guys that you can just load up on and other guys on the floor are not necessarily threats. And, you know, yeah, I mean, so I'm glad that you said that about um, Stanley, though, because I just, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know, man. Me and Ku both like that dude a lot. Uh, I hope that he succeeds in New Orleans. Um, but one thing to sort of transition out of that, because you brought him up, both of you guys brought him up. All right. I'm just curious what you think about this rod. So a lot of people thought that Stan Van Gundy was the elephant in the room with this team. Um, and like a lot of people thought that the players really didn't like him and that he had lost it, et cetera. And that Dwayne Casey would be such a huge improvement just from the terms of that guys would like him better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just curious, what are your sort of thoughts on that whole dynamic? Because there's a lot of people who felt really strongly that Stan Van Gundy was the issue with the team the past couple of years. Well, I, I think there's something to that is, that, is that the message starts to wear down. And I think Stan, in the sense that um, he was so structured in things that he wanted with the offense, that it just never let guys be what they wanted to be and, and the types of players that they could be, like... Drummond taking a three, the thought of Drummond taking a three, understand, would have just made his head explode. At least Casey's willing to listen to it. And I think the, the, you let him shoot it, and when he doesn't have success with it, you say, well, look, I gave you a chance. That's all I can do is give you a chance. And we can't have you shooting 25 or 20, whatever percent it was from three. So that's just not going to work for what we're trying to do. But I gave you that opportunity. Stan never would have gave, given him that opportunity to shoot two or three in a, in a season. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of it. With Stanley, it was the same sort of thing, is those guys coming out in the very beginning and saying, we want to improve what your game is and make you an integral part of what we're doing. Stan wouldn't have said that same sort of thing. It's sort of, hey, you got to get better. You, you just got to. So I think he's built some, he's made some inroads with some of those guys in just trying to figure out what they can do and putting a lot more faith in Langston Galloway, which at the beginning of the season was, was a, a genius move, but now it's sort of leveled off. But now you're able to at least make those adjustments and figure it out. Sam Van Gundy's biggest issue might have been that he, he wore both hats and that 
the trades for the most part worked out. Free agency was a disaster and the drafts were a disaster. So every, everything went back to him in terms of what the structure of this team was, who was on this team and what they did. He had the, the accountability at the end of the day for everything. And when one thing doesn't work, nothing works. When you're losing, there's nobody that you can go and talk to and say, hey, I, I think I'm, I need to be used differently. You can't go talk to the team president like that um, in a, in a um, general structure that you would get, a traditional structure with most teams. People don't wear both of those hats. The GM has a different role also that at least he can, um, he can be an ear that you listen to. Jeff Bauer was connected to Stan Van Gundy in that way. So he's kind of in between. He's, he's the guy that does the trades and, and who does a lot of the front office stuff while Stan is coaching. But he doesn't trump what Stan is doing. Stan is still his boss in, in, in that case. So with Dwayne Casey and now this Ed Stefanski structure and with Tom Gorris um, still kind of monitoring everything that goes on, it's a lot more streamlined. You can go talk to Ed Stefanski about what's going on as a player if you want to. And not that it's happened necessarily, but it is more of a traditional structure that people are accustomed to. And you don't have Stan who's just buying the groceries, cooking the meal, doing everything, stirring the pot. It's just a very difficult structure for a player to navigate in. Yeah, I mean, that makes good sense. I've just I've just always been a little bit curious about that because, you know, obviously us on the outside, it can be hard to to parse apart the, you know, things, the rumors from what's actually true and what isn't. So thanks for getting into that. Koo, do you have anything you like sort of general stuff you want to ask Rod? And then if you don't, we'll get into like sort of second the home stretch, what we want to see out of the home stretch and such. Uh, this last question, since you guys brought up Stan, uh, you were talking about how it's, he was what you think may have been his biggest downfall was the fact he had both hats. Now, if I remember correctly, wasn't there at in the summer, didn't a report come out that said Stan's going to return as just a coach, and then like a couple of days later, everything like changed. It he got fired, and or they mutually agreed to part ways. Uh, I I could have sworn I remember that at first we were hearing that okay, Stan's going to come back as just a coach. And then everything just did a 180 like a week later and he was gone. Yeah, I, I think that one was, I don't know if there was anything to that because Stan, from the very beginning, the reason he got the president's job is because he didn't want to have to report to anybody. Um, and I, I think that would have been an issue is that bring, unless it was somebody that um, he really trusted or that he had worked with before, let, let's say it was Jeff Bauer and that you want Jeff Bauer to be the team president then Stan might have worked under him. But to bring in a completely new guy um, just off the street, like, like Chauncey Billups was a name that popped around for a little bit. Chauncey Billups being the team president, being Stan's boss, absolutely would not have worked because Stan would always say, hey, I know more than you. I've got better connections than you. Um, and, and so I think that from the very beginning, when he took the job, um, linking those two things together and wearing both hats was one of the conditions that interested him and I mean, the, the, the other, we can save this for a different day, but the other fantasy land question is, what if Stan had taken that Golden State job instead of coming to the Pistons? What, what does the NBA landscape look like with Stan Van Gundy at the helm of that Golden State group? Does he let Steph Curry become who he is? Are they able to make the same moves? Are we talking about LeBron James having two or three more titles? It, it, that really did change the landscape of the NBA, whether we want to talk about it or not. That I mean, what if Steve Curry ends up coming to the Pistons instead? Is this markedly different 
So it, it's just something that I bounce around in my head sometimes is that certainly Van Gundy was interested in that Golden State job, but the reason that he came here was because he got both. That's actually really interesting because um, my basic understanding had been that it sort of went that Tom Gores was like, if you want to stay on as just coach for a year, we could do that. Then Stan was like, well, if I stay on as just coach, I want an extension, and Tom Gores wasn't letting that fly. But on you clearly – it seems pretty clear that no Stan didn't want to answer to anybody. And so that would actually make more, that would make more sense. Cause that whole situation always kind of confused me a little bit. So. Yeah. yeah. Especially, especially because Stan came out a couple months ago and was interviewed about it. And they were like, why didn't you just stay as a coach? And he said, I said, I would. So that's why I asked because I've heard like multiple different things about it. I know in the summer we heard why well, I just told you. And then, and then we heard that, no, he didn't want to come back as a coach, so we had to let him go. And then Stan came out a couple months ago in the interview and said, yeah, I was willing to do it, but they didn't want me back. And everything was just conflicting, which is why I asked. It didn't make a lot of sense. No, and I, I think it's, 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 it's an incomplete answer on his part. Yes, he wanted to come back, but under certain conditions. And I, I can tell you it was from the very beginning – the reason he got more interested in this job was because he'd have that protection of being the, the president and the head coach. And this summer, it was probably, yeah, he'd come back as the, the head coach, depending on who the, um, the general manager or the president would have been. But again, if you're talking Chauncey Billups and as the president and him as the coach, I just don't see how that would have worked out. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> that's something that we've both yeah. been wondering for the entire season. So that's really good. Thank you. If we missed that somewhere in some of your writing or something, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I don't think I had specifically written that because it was what is – what's the thought that he's going to be able to come back? And I think I did write he wanted to come back. But, again, it would have been under some very specific scenarios of um, depending on who that person above him would have been. Like, again, if it was Jeff Bauer ahead of him or Otis Smith or somebody that was already in his um, – on his staff that would have been there, then fine. But if it's somebody he's got to answer to, I just don't see how that would have worked. Okay, cool. Hey, yeah. Joe, can I ask Rod like yeah, one last dude, thing about you this? You can ask him all you want until he okay. leaves. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, now, Rod, this is just an opinion thing. This isn't like some, uh, what do you know? What do you hear? Whatever. This is just an opinion thing. So I wrote a piece before the season, before we fired Stan saying, that Stanley, uh, not Stanley, that Stan should definitely come back. I want to see him come back because I don't see why you would let him make the Blake trade and then never let him, like, try to make it materialize. Like, I don't see the point of letting him build all this, give him the chance to get the get Blake Griffin, finally a star, and then get rid of him before he gets the chance to do anything with it. I thought that was unfair. And I wanted to see what Stan could do with this team now that he finally got the star that he wanted. How? Did, what's your opinion on that? Would you have liked to see – Stan get a chance with Blake and come back from one because wasn't his contract up after this year anyways? Right, he's so he like, was still getting he, paid for this year, and I was yeah. I was on that same boat of saying, well, if you're paying him anyway, you may as well just go ahead and let him finish it out and see what's there with a healthy Blake, a healthy Reggie, and all of the pieces back. I think what ended up changing things, and, and I don't know this with any kind of inside information, was that Dwayne Casey became available. And they said, this is a coach of the year, top notch guy that if we can get him, then it's worth it at this point, because we're not exactly happy with this guy. And we can 
we can still let it play out, but it, we don't know who's going to be available next year. And there might not be another Dwayne Casey that's out there. And again, I, I don't know any specific information on that, but that's my guess because those things happened within about a week of each other that Casey got fired and then Stan got fired. So I don't know if they got wind that um, Casey was going to go after they lost in the, that playoff series that something like that was going to happen. But again, if you just break up with your girlfriend and the girl that you've always liked or a really nice option becomes <laughs> available to you, it might hasten your thoughts about breaking up and trying to create something there. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and you. I mean, you know, me and Koo both sort of agree on that, but the biggest thing that is with Stan Van Gundy is that, you know, even though we both sort of agree that it sounds like Rod sort of thinks the same thing is that, you know, you brought him in here to build a team and to sort of get that star and such. And it finally happened and then fire him. But the reality is he didn't win enough basketball games. And, you know, as much as we could say, well, Reggie Jackson was hurt. This happened, that happened in the end, this is a bottom line business. And if you don't win enough basketball games, it's hard to complain about that sort of thing. Right. And he had enough time to try to build something up. And, and again, this is this narrative that Reggie Jackson is the problem has gotten bigger than it needed to be. And I'll say one of Stan Van Gundy's biggest failings of that time was not his fault. The Reggie Jackson thing was not Stan's fault. The, the Coming off of the, the playoff appearance, Reggie got that um, PRP injection and he wasn't the same. That's not something that you can necessarily go out and say, oh, okay, well, yeah, he'll be better right after this. He was gone for, for part of that season. Then the next season when he got the ankle injury, how well were they playing in that game against the Pacers when he got hurt? And and that that part of that season, they were on their way to doing something, it would seem. But both of those injuries are just ill-timed, and they never were the same. But what he used to say was, you take the point guard off of any team. You take Russell Westbrook, and certainly not comparing um, Reggie Jackson and Russell Westbrook, but you take the point guard off of any contending team. Look at what the Wizards are doing now without John Wall and how they're sort of struggling. That any team without their starting point guard and you have to move Ish to a starting role, which doesn't suit him, that was really the crumbling of this team that you didn't have the depth to have another guard that could step right in and do what Reggie does. The fact that Reggie and Ish are so different in their styles and what they do, you can extend that out to this year now is that there wasn't anybody when Ish got hurt to replace him and to do the same thing that he, he did, which is why they've had so had such troubles. I think it was they were 8-18 eight and 18 when Ish is out, when Ish was injured during those games. Yeah. So it's the point guard and not being able to develop the depth and to have another guy like that, which goes back into the, free, the poor free agent signings and everything else. So it's all one big cycle and circle of things, but that's one huge piece is those injuries that people don't talk about enough is that a healthy Reggie, do they make the playoffs in 2017? Do they make the playoffs in 2018 with a completely healthy Reggie? I would say yes in both cases. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure Koo thinks the same, feels the same way, but a big what if for me at least is what if Reggie Jackson doesn't get hurt last year? Because, you know, that was very much so a freak injury. Like, he yeah. just landed wrong. I mean, you know, you can make the argument that a few guys were playing above their weight at that point. Um, their schedule got really tough also in addition. So they would have lost some more games regardless in that upcoming stretch. But man, I do think, you know, like what if that season had kept going like that and the Pistons had basically been what the Pacers were last year and then this year, although 
hopefully not having one of their dudes blow their knee out. But yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's a big what if for me. And yeah, so cool. Anything else you want to ask before we get into home stretch thing? No, that's, okay. that's so it. I just got a few questions about what we see and want to see um, here in the home stretch. And that'll be more or less what we finish with, I suppose. Um, so thing number one, uh, Kuyu, Raj, you can go first and Kuyu can go, then I'll go. Okay. Uh, is what do you think will be the most effective starting lineup for the Pistons going down the stretch? I think you're going to see, um, and the Bruce Brown piece, I don't really know about. I, I think he stays in there if he can get on a good role offensively and if his defense gets any better. But I think you'll see Wayne Ellington step in and, and play that three, if you're going to call it a three, but they'll just have to roll with two guards. Like we talked about, they just don't have a, a typical three that they can run. Um, but I think you'll see Jackson, Brown, Ellington, Griffin, and Drummond as the, the lineup that kind of finishes this thing out. Yeah, I agree with Rod simply because it's like, I, I, I agree with Rod, but not not because I want to. It's like by default. It's yeah, like there's, yeah. no, there's like nothing else I can really think of. Like, because we've seen Luke with the starters and with the bench. And even not even talking about just Luke, we saw a couple of games ago, I forget what game it was, he came to the starting lineup and the bench was just horrific. It, like he leaves the bench and then the bench goes to crap. So it's like, well, we can't start Luke now. So even if he was playing well at the starters, it's probably something we won't be able to do because the bench just goes to crap. And then Bruce is something goes on with Bruce that in that starting lap that just like clicks. Apparently I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how it does, but it just clicks. So, and we have been seeing Wayne Ellington as the all-star break came and the few games he played, he was getting more run with the starters. So I'll figure that I agree with Rod and it's going to be Jackson Brown, Ellington and Blake. Okay. And Dre. Yeah. I pretty much think the same thing there. Um, so we're all in agreement. That's going to be their best starting lineup. Most likely. And, Rod, you said that it's not just a matter of, well, Luke is coming off the bench now. They're pretty committed to they want Luke coming off the bench, right? Yeah, I think it's just – it's that it's something that he does. They want another facilitator. And with Blake and Reggie, you don't need another facilitator in that first group. And that's where he gets lost is, is Luke isn't just a spot-up three-point shooter. He likes to probe a little bit, get inside, and that's what – Dwayne Casey doesn't like about him in some cases is when you get the ball, shoot the ball. You got a green light. You got a, a fluorescent green light. Shoot the ball when you get it. And Luke just likes to take that step in and probe and get in the paint and make that little up fake and then spin around the other way and make that short jumper. He's just not a come in and shoot. And that's what you would love for him to do is the same stuff that Bruce Brown does spot up in the corner. And uh, Blake penetrates, kick it over there. He'd love for him to be that, but in the starting group, he just doesn't. I don't think he's cut that way to do that on a consistent enough basis. So you're going to see Luke in that second group creating, penetrating, probing, which does create stuff for Galloway and some of those other guys. I think what you, sh you probably should see more is mixing of those groups. When you see um, five reserves out there is when the Pistons get in a lot of trouble sometimes is, is they just don't, they're not able to sustain that. So you're going to see uh, Blake stand out there a little bit longer, Reggie stand a little bit out there longer, maybe Drummond with those, uh, with that second group, just to give them that extra kick that they need. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is especially the last couple of weeks, Luke off the bench has started to really look good. 
Um, that's been another thing that I think there's been a rather pointed effort to try and make him more a focal point of the offense with the bench group. And uh, in particular, combining him with Zaza Pachulia, I think is a good thing since Zaza is such a good screen setter. Uh, that's good. He's re- They've got pretty good chemistry. There's a little bit of uh, Stanley Johnson, Aaron Baines back in their first season going on there with those two guys. So I like some of that. Um, second question then, connected a little bit. Do you think or do you want to see Kyrie Thomas be a regular part of the rotation going down the stretch? Uh, I think I would like to because he could be that other defender that you need because Bruce has, has fallen off a little bit from that defensive edge that he had and that where he was dogging and, and he was playing against the Beals, the Currys, the Hardens, the everybody else. He doesn't have that same level of defense defense and that energy that he had before if Thomas can do some of that because he's got the better and more polished offensive game I'd like to see some of that but again if you take Bruce Brown out of that starting lineup you start creating more issues than anything else is how do you plug that do you put Galloway in that two spot and play Galloway and Ellington well then what do you do with Bruce in that second group it's then you're playing Bruce and Kyrie in the second group. And with two rookies there, you're going to have a lot of mistakes. I just don't think they have a big margin of error in these last 26 games to just mess around and experiment with stuff. I think they've got to go full bore. And I would think they've got to finish, what, 16 and 10, maybe? Maybe even a little bit north of that in these last 26 to really feel good about where they're going to be for the playoffs. Joe, what was your question? Do we want to see Kyrie Thomas in the regular rotation the rest of the way? Well, we talked about this last time. I say absolutely, <laughs> and it's not because I want to see Bruce Brown leave. It's because I'm tired of saying Langston Galloway. And <laughs> Langston Galloway, <laughs> I'm going to be upfront about it, Rod. I'm, I'm, I'm very upfront about these things. But <laughs> Langston, Langston, listen. Langston is a good person. Langston, he brings out some cool shoes. I like seeing the shoes. He's a great person. He's a great story. But, man, your job was to come here and shoot and and shoot the ball well. Not just shoot. Shoot the ball well because he he's doing one job, right? He's shooting it. But he's not, he's, not, he's, not, he's not exactly making the shots. And I believe that Kyrie Thomas would just be all around better than Langston at this point because – uh, like I believe that Kyrie's just bigger and probably better. Joe talked about this last pod, but yesterday, some people believe that Langston's like some good defender. I don't see it. I don't see how people think he's a good defender. I don't believe he he is. He's just too small, and I've I've seen him get torched too many times. Strict, not even because of effort, just strictly because of his size. So I believe that Kyrie Thomas has shown enough, especially. Um, like just on both ends of the court, he has a polished offensive game, and I think he would hold up better on defense. So I would very much like to see Kyrie Thomas instead of Lakes and Galloway moving forward. And I, I tend to agree with you, but I, I'll go with the ceiling argument here. When Langston hits shots and he's playing at his best, is that better than Kyrie Thomas's? Best. Probably not. Oh, cool. With well, oh, no, probably okay. yes. Probably yeah. No. I said the wrong thing. Yes, probably. <laughs> right, and I, 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 I think you can – Langston goes – he's very hot and very cold. It's not even a, an in-between. It's – he'll have a, an 18-point game or a 20-point game and then come back the next game with six points or, or four points. 
if he could get in the consistent 10 to 12 range just about every game, every other game, you'd feel a lot better about it. But I think you, what Casey would do is lean to experience a little bit more and lean to the shooting. Is Thomas going to be a better three-point shooter than Galloway when they're both on? No. And you can, you can accept some of the defensive issues, but they, on a general basis, Galloway is going to be a better plus-minus guy, I would think. And he knows game plans on how to defend certain guys from having been in the league. As a rookie, A, you're not going to get calls, and B, you're just going to make a lot of mistakes. So Galloway's aren't mistakes necessarily. They're just, this guy's better than you. But um, I think you, you run a lot more risk with, with trucking a rookie out there and seeing and letting him try to grow in the midst of a playoff race. I just would think that Casey would lean the other way and go with Galloway on that. Yeah, and I, yeah I agree that Casey probably is going to lean with the experience and that's not something I'm very happy of, but like, I'll just give you an example of my thinking. I'll just give you like a recent example. I believe it was the game right before the all-star break. Langston Galloway came in and this is something like he hasn't played well for a while. In my opinion, he hasn't, he hasn't been very good on the court for a minute. And his last, the last game before the all-star break in his first five minutes on the court, he was a minus 14. And it was just like, it was the plus minus told you what the, and like I agreed with the high test. Like it was awful what was going on out there. And it's just, you're right. When he gets hot, Langston has these moments where he gets hot and it's just like, whoa, what, what's going on? But they're exactly that moments. And I can't remember the last time it happened and it's becoming fewer and fewer times. Like last year we were having the argument that why isn't Langston playing blah, 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 blah. Because last year we saw more of these hot moments when he got to see, got some playing time. It's getting even fewer, and he wasn't even in the rotation like that last year. It's getting even fewer of those hot moments this year, and it's just more cold, cold, cold. And I believe our, our friend Martin, uh, my co-side expert at Piston Powered, he tweeted something. Uh, Stanley Johnson was shooting a higher percentage than Langston on open threes, and that's just not acceptable. And I, I understand the argument for, well, if he's hot, he gives you a higher ceiling than Kyrie Thomas. That's fair, but I believe, one, the ceiling isn't going to be reached more than once the rest of the way, and two, the floor is exceptionally lower with Langston because he. the thing with Langston is, and it's like his it's like his strength and his weakness, is that he's just going to keep shooting no matter what. Like, he doesn't care if he's missed, like, six straight. He's just going to keep launching. And, it, like, it can help him when he's hot, but when he's cold, it's just like, dude, come on. And, like, I understand the whole – shooter shoot they're going to get back into the rhythm that that would be okay if we didn't know that langston was like the coldest person on the planet when he starts missing so like i i i'm 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 done with the langston experience i wholeheartedly believe that Kyrie thomas probably would be better for the team moving forward but i understand like why casey does it i just i just don't agree with it no he's he's three for his last 17 from three and that those last four games the Denver game was the one that he played well, and he had 18 and was um, six for 13 from three. Um, so, yeah, to your point about him shooting it and continuing to shoot it, but it's just – and I agree. Well, on the defensive end, if you're giving up more points than you are bringing us, then why are you even out there? What are you, what are you really trying to do? Um, so I think there's something there. It's just – I think game plan-wise, they look at – um, what he can do. And maybe that's the, the middle ground is 
And we've seen this too, that Galloway plays well or, or plays in that first half. When he doesn't play well, he gets yanked. And then you see Thomas in the second half. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's probably what you'll see more of. But I just don't see Langston being completely on the bench and out of the rotation and Thomas usurping all of those minutes. I, that would be hard for me to see. Well, there's two things that I'd like to say back to Koo. First one is, um, we talked about this yesterday, Koo, but um, you can still put some hope that Galloway will start to hit shots just based on, you know, the basic statistics. Um, the number I brought up was Marcus Morris in 2015, 2016. Heading into the All-Star break, he was shooting 30% from three. After the All-Star break, he shot 44%. Like, it's not very often that dudes who are good shooters just are terrible shooters for an entire season. Um, the other thing, though, Koo, is that, let's be clear about something. The floor with Kyrie Thomas is almost definitely lower just because he's a rookie. Like, that's how that be. Like, I'm rookies not, can go through the stretch. I don't agree with that, man. I do. I absolutely think that. I like Kyrie Thomas. I see, he's He was real awesome in Grand Rapids here. He was a real nice guy. Good dude. I like him. I like his future. But right now, I would say the floor with Kyrie Thomas is probably lower than Galloway's. And, and Joe, actually, the reason why I disagree with you isn't even like – the reason why I disagree with you isn't because I just think – like I think highly of Kyrie too, but it's not even because I think highly of Kyrie. It's because I think so lowly of Langston. It's like that's why. <laughs> well, it's not like well, – it's not like I think Kyrie's about to be some savior. I just think he'll be – he won't be as bad. Like, he may not get as good, but he won't be as bad as Langston gets when he's just – he's not bringing anything. I mean, the other side of that is is if we're talking rookies, look at what Bruce is doing now. He's not playing well either on the defensive end. And we know offensively he struggles to consistently score. So you're going to put those two guys together in, in a rotation? Or you're – I think it's just – Bruce had played better at the beginning of the year. He's not getting the calls now as a rookie, and I don't think he's going to get those calls as a rookie. And so you've just got to watch how you match those two guys together, and you can really only have one liability on the floor with both of those guys together. Where's your offense coming from, and can you offset that with better defense? That's going to be the big question. Yeah. Well, I actually believe – I threw this out here a couple of podcasts ago. I actually believe that Kyrie is better than Bruce. I think I've seen something. I think Kyrie is just more polished. I think, honestly, that if Kyrie would have got more minutes than – if Kyrie would have got the minutes Bruce got, I think Kyrie would have, would be better than Bruce. I, 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 That's valid. I came to that conclusion. That's valid. I can, I can buy that. Well, yeah. I mean, I told this to you, Koo, but one thing that, like, at least when they were both in Grand Rapids that really stands out is that, like, Bruce is on a different level athletically than Kyrie Thomas is like, absolutely. Bruce is honestly, he's one of the more freakish athletes that I've seen in person, at least. I mean, and the thought process there is, you know, rookies are going to make all sorts of rookie mistakes. Right. But Bruce is such a phenomenal athlete that he can make up for some of those bad plays by making really good plays. And I get that because Thomas is hypothetically, at least a, a, a good shooter um the floor with thomas might be a little higher but i'm just i mean i i like both those guys a lot i really like them and i wouldn't mind Kyrie being in the rotation i wouldn't even mind him being in the rotation over bruce brown but i actually totally get the idea that bruce you just rely on the fact that that dude is an absolute freak of an athlete like absolute freak and you just kind of go, we're just going to put him out there and he's going to be a freak athlete, basically. And 
just hope that that works out basically, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. So, we'll just we'll do we'll do one more one last question. We'll wrap up because we just went over an hour. So, we don't want to keep Rod the whole day, Koo. So, last question. Are the Detroit Pistons going to make the playoffs? Yes. <laughs> All right, Koo. Oh, you said that very confidently, Rod. <laughs> He's feeling good. No, and I, 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 I'll expound uh, on it. Go, go ahead, Koo. You can go ahead, and then I'll expound on it. No, no, go ahead. I want to. No, I want to hear why you're so confident. I'll, go ahead. Uh, be, first, it's the schedule, and I wrote about that today in the paper. Is the schedule just permits it? They've got the twenty fourth, um, which makes them the seventh easiest schedule left. And Orlando's is a little bit easier than theirs, and Washington is right above theirs, I believe. But Washington is three games back. The Brooklyn Nets have the second hardest schedule, and Charlotte has the third hardest. Or actually, they're tied, but it's whatever. Brooklyn has a ridiculously hard schedule, and they still got to go out west. They still got to play. Their last seven games, I think they play six teams that are – it's just really, really tough. And I laid it out for each of those six teams that are in contention, Brooklyn, Charlotte, the Pistons, uh, Washington, Orlando, and Miami. And each one of them has a a difficult part. Some of them have West Coast trips. Some of them have whatever else. The Pistons, on that West Coast trip, they get Portland, Golden State. They should beat Phoenix just because they should. And then Denver, and they've already beaten Denver. They've just got to play well on the road the last little stretch. Pistons have Cleveland twice, Chicago twice. There are plenty of of easy ones that they should be able to just mop up if they play reasonably well against a tanking team. And then they finish their last two uh, home against Memphis and at the Knicks. I mean, again, if they go 16 and 10, and that's being very modest, they should be okay. Um, Yeah, I'm going to say they do make the playoffs. But like Rod said, this isn't going to be one of those things when – they're going to be able to rely on other people to get them into the playoffs. They are going to have to play well. And I wrote about this. They have, they're in the control of their own destiny. Like they don't need to rely on nobody else. Now they're in, they got the tiebreaker over Miami right now with the AC. And then this coming weekend, they got what, um, who do they play Friday? Phoenix, Atlanta, Atlanta, Atlanta. Atlanta. They play Atlanta. And then immediately right after that, they play Miami. So that gives them a chance to immediately get two games. If, Philadelphia handles their business, their business against Miami. That's immediate two games right there that they should win. So they have control of their own destiny. I'm going to say they do make the playoffs, though I'm I'm very I, – I love my Pistons, but they have broken my heart over the past two years by finding ways to lose to teams they shouldn't lose to. So I, I'm trying to – I think they make the playoffs, but they may give us a few heart attacks along the way. It's, my, it's going to be my answer. Yeah, and I, I think it's a case of they're going to lose some games that they probably shouldn't, but just like that Denver game and just like the Golden State game, they're going to win some that you just kind of, how the heck did they win that game? The the game at San Antonio, the um, they got Indiana twice without Oladipo. I mean, that's going to be a little bit different. But again, the those Cleveland and those Chicago games, they got a Brooklyn and, um, Brooklyn and Miami uh, road trip that will be so, so important. And that's the other piece of it is they they got Miami twice. They got Brooklyn once. So those teams that are right around them in the standings that they can still get hit um, the tiebreakers against, those are going to be just as critical as 
that West Coast road trip. I think the, the, the West Coast road trip, if they can come back two and two, they feel really good about themselves in that four game stretch. And uh, those other ones that uh, they got Charlotte one more too. So just finishing the season out really strongly will be good for them. Yeah, cool. You said you had to, you wanted to ask him one more question. Yes, yes, Brad. I'm sorry to take up your time, but I just want to pick. No, you're brain. good. You're good. I'm sorry, but okay, okay. So these are like this is like quick questions, like two quick questions. They shouldn't take long. One, one. Um, how do you feel? Me and Joe have both rant. Well, not as much Joe, I guess. I won't throw him under the bus like that. But I've ranted about GR three. What What's your thinking of like? the signing like how bad he's played or just how he's played this year and how that's like hurt the Pistons because like we said we have no threes and GR3 was supposedly supposed to be that person and a lot of people wanted him to start to start the season and it's just completely went like the worst way possible so what's this your feeling behind all of that should he like get another chance and get more PT just because we have no threes now and he's hypothetically what we need so we just should we try it again or what? Yeah, I, What's I think your you're just going to need to in certain situations because of size. I mean, in that um, Washington game, it was just so apparent that they just didn't have guys in the Boston game too. When who's guarding Jason Tatum? Tatum, you just don't have a body type and an athletic enough guy to do it. So you got to put GR three out there for some of those stretches. He's athletic enough. I think sometimes the basketball IQ is what comes into question with him is and we saw this the very first game of the year when he was supposed to foul uh, when they were up three against Brooklyn and and Blake Griffin got so upset because he didn't in his mind he was yeah I got this guy but it was no 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 it doesn't matter whether you have him it's the game plan that we're supposed to foul just follow that so sometimes he might just get into these moments where he forgets what's going on or he's he's a little bit overconfident about it but he's got to be that six seven guy who can guard and and get out there on the wing and do something offensively is where I think the biggest level of disappointment is, is that he was supposed to be a better three-point shooter. He was supposed to be able to be more athletic and get to the rim. I don't know if he's completely healthy. And I'm, I'm just throwing that out there, that that sprained ankle really took a lot out of him. And he hasn't looked even the same from what he was in the beginning of the year since that ankle injury um, sidelined him for a few games. So that might be part of it too, is, is they're still trying to figure out what's going to go on. And I asked Dwayne Case the other day about it, are there other options at three? And first, one of the first names he threw out there was, uh, we still got GR3. Well, you got to use them too, though. It's not just having guys on the roster. It's not like high school where you just have a seven-footer just to scare the other team. You got to actually use them, uh, and, and they've got to be <laughs> effective for me to really believe that there's something there. So I think we'll, we'll get back to the GR3 experiment. I'd much rather even see what Svee has at this point. Can can he contribute? Yeah. Because yeah. again, when I've seen him in practice, the three point motion and the the um, mechanics there are very very good. It's just can he start to understand the offense? Can he be okay on defense? And um, does he have a role this year, or is that something that they're kind of pushing down the road to next year? Yeah, I I agree. I think we should see some Svee, and as I don't really want to see GR three anymore. I think <laughs> I think that's I think he's that experiment's over. I'd rather see Svee, but I understand why we'd have to play him just because we have no other threes. And okay, so my last question is, I I've followed you for a minute for a long time, Rod, and you're one of the my favorite followers for this reason right here. Um, so in your opinion, Rod, who who's the top five? Who's like at the top of the game right now, rap wise in the hip hop in the hip hop game? 
who do, who do you have like at the top of the hill right now? Right and that's now? Not, yeah, when I say that, I don't mean like, well, Grace Alive, so include Jay-Z, Eminem, all that stuff. I mean like currently going, like who do you have at the top of the game? I, I cannot answer this question because I don't listen to current rap. I just don't. Ah, cool. Oh, you, no. you goo. I, I, <laughs> I, I, and that's just me. I, I listen to more old school stuff than anything else. Um, there's nobody that I listen to right now. I, and that's not even a lie. I, there, I can't tell you, and this is, this is probably uh, not going to bode well for me. I can't tell you one, two chain song. I can't tell you one. Oh no! See, Rod. No, 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 no. Two chains. Rod, you're not missing two much. Chains does, two chains does not count as as someone I would even consider. Like, like, I'll give you an example. I saw you tweet like last year or whenever it came out. J Cole's diss on the 1985 song. Uh, did you? Uh, what's? Do you know your thought? Do you have any thoughts on J Cole, or do you not? You've never. You haven't listened much of him either. I don't hate him. But I don't listen to enough that I could I could give you an educated opinion on J. Cole either. It's just it's this vacuum of um, somebody put me on the Kendrick Lamar a few years ago, maybe five years ago. And it was sort of, OK, well, he's got something there so I can listen to Kendrick. And I, I it's cliche, but I'll say he's the guy. He's the standard bearer now for what. it. But just anybody else, I couldn't give you an educated opinion on it. It's just. It's a vast wasteland of nothing for me. <laughs> my boy, my boy is going to love hearing you say that. He's absolutely, he is like obsessed with Kenneth Lamar. He thinks he's like one of the best ever, but like, yeah, I agree with you. Like it's gotten pretty bad recently, but no, I, you I still don't find, agree with I, him. Don't lie. No, I do. You are lying no, through I your teeth. No, I'll t- no, I think J. Cole is absolutely amazing. I think very highly of Drake strictly because of how long he's been at the top. And how many, like, how long he's been? At the you just like all the light skinned is- dudes. That's all. <laughs> There's that. Well, yeah, you could say that. But no, I agree with Rod. A lot of these, like, Lil Yachty, I like, I mean, I like the music. I can listen to the music, but like, people like Lil Yachty, Lil Boat, uh, not Lil Boat, uh, Lil Pump, and like all these other guys, it's, it's definitely getting watered down. So I understand what he's saying. There's, uh, there's only like a, you have to go searching to find like the rap that you want to listen to now because. A lot of it's just is garbaggio. I agree with him. <laughs> yeah, I'm just an old school guy, and that's I, right now. I, I'm from the the 80s and 90s, um, so I, I lean a little bit more that direction. And yeah, I could I couldn't tell you anybody who's putting out anything right now. Rod be rolling around oh, yeah, listening love, to Naughty by Nature. Eee, I don't really love Naughty by Nature either. They're kind of um. Uh, I'm gonna say they're kind of poppy. And, and maybe that's just hip hop array is just very, it's like, um, I put them in the, the same category with LMFAO and I'll probably get in trouble for that too. But it's just, it's a, it's a party, oh. it's a party <laughs> anthem sort of thing. And I don't like them as a true hip hop group. I mean, Eric B and Rakim is, is my stuff and, um, public enemy cube that era, because it was, it really meant something. Tribe Call Quest is probably my, my, one of my favorite groups. So I'm from mm. that era, and I can tell you more about that than anything in the past, say, ten years or so. Okay, hey, so what? Hey, do you- hold up, though. Okay, so since you're on there, right? If you could take like one album with you, like your your music is on fire, you could take one album. What album are you taking? Ooh, um, 
either low end theory or midnight marauders it depends on the day i go back and forth of those being my two favorite albums of of just any kind of hip-hop era or anything else because you can go end to end without skipping you know the words the beats are just there the jazz infusion of it isn't just this upbeat hip-hop boom 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 sort of thing but it's melodic it has good lyrics it's just it's entertaining stuff it's good wordplay it's everything that i look for when i listen to hip-hop stuff okay so we were, we were supposed keep to it, stop keep this it rolling. like keep 10 it minutes ago but now i just yeah, yeah. Cool. It's our curse. Say, the moment we say we're almost say, done is when we got like another hour. This can, this can be on the deleted time. scenes. This is the extended no, version is, of it. Yes, yes. This is this is something I really want to talk about with Ron. Okay, so okay, we can. I'll hit you with the next one. Um, this is an argument that now I don't know if like I'm just gonna say I love I love old school hip hop. I don't. I love two thousands rap, and I think that's falling off. I agree with you, but. Do you believe, do you believe, like, this is an argument I get all the time with my, with my boy. He's a rapper. So we get into an argument about this. Do you believe that you, there's like a way to critique and rank rappers? Like there's, there's a argument out there that's like, everything's just opinion. There's no real way to just rank a rapper and critique one because everything's just opinion. I don't agree with that. I think there's like, there's like things you can rate people on like lyrics, uh, flow, um, style, all that kind of stuff. I think there's ways you can rank rappers. I think there are too many rappers. variables what, there to try that? to rank them. Because you can say, um, you can point to Kendrick's lyricism, but it, it's almost like trying to rank basketball players. Is Kobe better than LeBron? Is is Magic better than whoever? No. There's some things that that remain consistent throughout any era, but you have to build off of, and you have to look at the in context at the time. Because, and Rakim is my number one favorite rapper, hands down. I'm not arguing with anybody over it. It's just, this is what, this is what I believe. You believe something different. Okay, cool. There's no argument. Because at the time, he made lyricism important and the flow important such that nobody else had done it at the time. And he, his beats were good, but his lyricism over those beats and the way that he thought about it and the way that he spit it out was different than anybody else. So if you do that and if you ask people, they will tell you they were influenced by Rakim. So it's like James Brown almost. People don't give James Brown the credit that he deserved because of the era that he was in, but so many people it were influenced in their style and the Bruno Mars and the Prince. Prince will tell you he was influenced by James Brown. Michael Jackson will tell you that he's influenced by James Brown. But people think of both of those guys as more important and higher on the hierarchy than James Brown. But they influenced him, and they wouldn't be them without him. So it's just really hard to gauge rappers and to say, um, I could say my opinion, I like um, this guy, or I like uh, De La Soul better than I like um, some other group, or than Naughty by Nature, let's say. But unless you're going to give some type of categories and you rank them in these things, but you have to take time and context in part of that context, because somebody who's out now is going to have benefited from all of that other stuff. So is, um, is Clay Thompson better than Steve Kerr, or I, I don't know what other, whether other, what other shooter you want to compare them to? Well, you can look at their shooting percentages, but what offenses are they in? How important is a three point shot now to the game? as opposed to when Steve Kerr played. Yeah, you're going to shoot a greater volume of them. And 
everything else. Uh, and, and the other piece is like triple doubles. When they want to make these Oscar Robertson triple doubles or um, Will Chamberlain had X number of triple doubles, those guys will tell you, we did it at a time when triple doubles wasn't even a thing. They didn't care whether they got um, nine rebounds and 24 points and, and 12 assists or something it, because triple doubles wasn't a thing back then. So it's the same sort of, you got to look at the time and the context and you can judge it a little bit, but it's not a foolproof answer to anything. Well, I mean, I think that it's almost like the best way to do it is like you can you could talk about ways that you can objectively say like the quality of music is higher or lower, but the reality is that people are going to like what people are going to like, right? Like I think that's the key. Like I'm a little bit of a music snob, but there's some people that they just annoy me so much. Like, hey, who cares if someone likes music that's just kind of low quality crap, you know? Like People like what they're going to like. That's the whole point of music. So, yeah. Who likes a lot of crap? No, I don't like a lot of crap. No, I like no I like a lot of I like a lot of good content. I don't know what Joe's talking about. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> but uh okay, Rod, what do you, what's your what do you think about Eminem? Where do you think that he's at like Uh good lyricist historically uh, maybe what's even your really good him? lyricist and, and James Edwards and I have this discussion all the time that he he would put um we we have this MC versus rapper argument and whether um, Eminem is, uh, he says Eminem, Eminem is the top lyricist. He's the best lyricist ever. And I'm sort of, I'm just sort of, eh, maybe. That's, I, yeah. I agree. That's what yeah. I think. But again, it's, it's, it's built off of the time is that you had to have other <laughs> lyricists to emulate and to say, okay, this is what they did. And this is why lyricism is important as opposed to beats. And in the 80s, um, the beats started to be more important than everything else. So then you start getting into DJs and producers, and it's a whole, it's a it's a big conversation. I like Eminem, he's okay. He's not my favorite, he's not in my top five, but I can listen to the argument that he is among those top five. Um, if he's not I in your top Daddy five, King who is in your top five? Is the one that um, I will, uh, and I'm not a big Jay-Z guy, but I, I, I can respect his work. Jay-Z, um, uh, Rakim, who's the other one? I'll put Tupac in there and, and Biggie, and then Big Daddy Kane is my fifth. There's one person I, I haven't heard you mention, and it's kind of shocking because you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, Rakim, and I thought that this would be like someone, based off what you said, I thought this would be someone that you, you would say, but I haven't heard you say anything about Nas. What's your What's your feeling on Nas? Nas, I kind of go back and forth. Um, I could go back and forth on him, and I'll put Black Thought in that same sort of group. That Black Thought is right there because of his uh, lyricism and his flow. But it, I'd have to go through and listen and start breaking it down and put it on some sort of scale and say, "Well, I like this." There, there's certain certain stuff that people make that I like, and certain stuff that I don't. I think Tupac's earlier stuff is just as compelling as his later stuff. I, I think the Tupacalypse is probably his best album, which a lot of people just don't agree with. But the message and the way that he delivered it was, I mean, it, it's better than all eyes on me for me. But again, I'm just, I'm a different cat. I, I, I like different things than other people do. Fair enough. I, I'll take that. I'll take it. I was just expecting... 
I, I gotta be honest. I love when you said that you listen to old school rap and then you mentioned all these. I was surprised that you didn't mention Nas because so many people that I when when they say that the one of the first names they say is Nas and it's like something I'm just used to hearing now because apparently I never knew that Nas had such a. I I never knew Nas had such a the following that he has. I didn't I didn't know that he was that big. Uh, no, let me take that back. I understand how good he is and how big he was, but I didn't know that he had this following. No, that he, he still he does. He's it was he, kind of shocking. Really, he's probably in that six through ten range for me. But Black Thought is the one yeah. that very often gets lost in that conversation too with Nas. And a lot of it is, I mean, I'm not as big a Tupac fan as as other people. But I recognize what he does and, and his impact on stuff and how he evolved over his time. And just I, I just hate trying to include anybody who has if you don't have four or five albums, you can't be in that discussion. You can't have just just one or yeah, two yeah. And, and you and a bunch of um, features and, and on somebody else's work and then say you're one of the best rappers of all time. I hate that sort of um, display and those, those assessments of people that. Well, yeah, let's put uh, this guy in there because, well, dude, he never produced his own album. His, or he's got two albums and a bunch of singles that he did with other people. Yeah, he can't. Yeah, no, no. So do you do you hold that? So since you said that, do you hold that kind of thing against Biggie? Um, No, because there's enough stuff that he did in his albums that there's that quality of work there. That's... um. Ready to Die, Life After Death, those things where there's enough that's there that you can say, all right, well, yeah, this is this is enough. And from, from what he did, it's not, he did enough other things on other people's albums that it's not just, it's this mixtape that you did. And that's probably better what I meant. It's, it's not just you're on some mixtape and you've got some other stuff. He released enough albums where I can listen to that and say, yeah, he's, he's definitely one of those. And he had the impact on the culture um, and changing the culture that he can he can be included in that. Okay, cool, right, cool. You gotta be silent a second while we're talking about music. Rod, I'm gonna ask you something, and cool, you gotta be silent. You're not allowed to say anything. Oh my god, Rod, what is your opinion on R. Kelly? I stopped listening to R. Kelly uh, when the stuff started to come out the first time when he started going to in the. Right around the Aaliyah time, when he was dating Aaliyah, then I stopped kind of listening to it because it's like, for real, is that what we're doing? We're 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 dating fourteen year olds. So it was, and and I I just haven't listened to it at all. When it comes on the radio, turn the station. When it, um, I thought the the documentary was fascinating that it went on for that long and people just continued to, um, support him which kind of says something about how we are with celebrities and everything else. So you would say that that definitely taints his legacy then? Um, it almost erases his legacy for me. Ah, cool. 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 You have to, you have to log off now. Those are the rules. This man cool has gotten an endless arguments with us about this man. Now, now, Rod, this is this is all I'm gonna say about it. I don't know why Joe had to bring this up. I don't, I don't know why Joe, I don't know, I don't know why Joe had to do this. But all I'm gonna say about it is this: I, I understand why people would do that, and I, like, it's not like I mean, obviously, I understand. Like, it's not like I'm trying to defend or anything. Like, obviously, but 
I I find I can. This is okay. Let me this, just. Okay, this I'll just sounds like you're about it. to defend I, him, but okay. No, I'm not. No, not the, no, not defend him. It's that said, I can. It, it, I do this with everybody, and I guess this is a problem now. But with it. I, I separate the person from the the music, and in my opinion, there's just no way that like R. Kelly, R. Kelly's music and his impact on just the game, like the the game of R and B, and just the his what he's done. Like, there's all kinds of people. Like, I believe it was Billboard said that he was the most influential person of R and B in the last thirty years. Like I understand, like this is my thing. I understand everything he did. I'm not comment. I don't ever comment on the things he he's done, or I don't like. It's not something I argue about. It's like that's it is what it, that's his personal life. He did what he did. He should take any kind of punishment and all punishment that he should get. But I just don't see how. I just don't agree that you, he his his impact on the game of R and B should ever like. I just think that he's had such a huge impact on R&B that, yeah, he's he's probably screwed up. He's definitely a screwed up person, but, like, that's usually... And if you look at any musical art, like, a lot of these great artists, a lot of them created their music when they were going through, like... A lot of these messed up, like Ray Charles and all these people, a lot of them had, were, like, messed up in their personal life, and they that's that, like, led to some of their best music. So, like... I mean, I just don't think I just don't see how you can eliminate someone who's been as influential as R. Kelly has on the last thirty years of R and B. So, so, so let me give opinion. you this. I understand, and, and I'll people... agree with you to a certain extent, um, because is it much different than Bill Cosby? And he'll always be the Cosby Show. He'll always have an influence on our culture as being the TV dad. So those are are, are parallel in a lot of ways. But it's how we react as a society to um, just little girls, teenage girls. You're literally going to a middle school or high school and picking up teenage girls to go and um, to, to some degree, that's your personal business and whatever you do to the extent that it's just illegal to do. And my favorite artist of any genre of any anything is Miles Davis. And Miles Davis was a, a, a known womanizer and um domestic abuser with his wives. So it's the same sort of thing. You can overlook some stuff if you want to, and you're that type of fan. It's just what you choose to overlook. And I think R. Kelly's is different, is that that crosses a personal line for me of what you choose to overlook in that case and to separate out the artist from the work that they've done um, to say that those things are completely different. Some people are the same way about Michael Jackson, that they can't you you can't overlook the the work that he's done because of the other stuff that he's done in his personal life, and that's on each individual. I'm not going to say that you're a bad person because you um you like the contribution that R. Kelly made. It's just different for each person in how they view what that thing is, in comparison to um how egregious it is in their personal life. And again, when you get to illegal, in the sense of how much he's done it and what you will accept and won't accept, then that's a personal choice. That's a, a moral compass thing that everybody has their own thing on. Okay. And well, like I understand that completely, obviously, like once again, there's no defending what they do in their personal life, but this has been my thinking since 
Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and just say my favorite artist of all time, and I'm a big R&B person, big R&B, 2000s, 2000s R&B, 90s R&B. I, I love that. And my favorite artist of all time is Chris Brown. I think he's absolutely, I, I absolutely love Chris Brown. So now I'm judging you. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a pattern to this. Derrick so Rose is also his favorite okay. basketball player. <laughs> no, no, this is suspect there, Koo. You're showing signs. I mean, I mean, this is all, this is what I'm gonna say. And I once I I've always had this opinion since I was like real young, like ninth grade. I formed like this opinion, and this is just how I think about things. When they came into the spotlight. And this may oh god, this may be controversial, but <laughs> don't get when, fired, Koo. When they came when they came into the spotlight, like we didn't we didn't start liking them because we thought they were great people or we wanted to be like them as a as a person. It was their it was their music, it was their artwork that we paid attention to. And we can go all the way back in history of all kinds of people, like presidents that were involved in things that I just don't want to talk like we can just go all the way back in just people's personal lives that have had an impact on just history in general that just weren't probably just weren't very good people but that there, to me you can separate the two because we weren't it's not like we care not that we don't care it's not that that's what we idolize that's not what we hold up we care about the artwork we care about that and lastly if any of them ever do like anything in their personal life, obviously they should face the full punishment and like anything that something like me, you, Joe would do, they should get the same punishment, have to go through everything. But I just agree. I just think that you should be able to separate the person from the artwork, because I think, especially when they have such a profound impact, like, like, for example, XX Atancion, I don't know if you know who that was, but uh, he died when he was killed. A lot of people, he wasn't, he didn't impact the game as much. So I could understand that. But like, if someone like, Jay, let's say Jay-Z came out and there was some crazy things going on with Jay-Z. By the way, I don't know if anybody knows this, but Jay-Z was talking about marrying Beyonce when she was underage. So I don't know if anybody like understood that, but uh, if like some crazy things came out about Jay-Z, would we just eliminate Jay-Z from the rap le- like era? Like you can't do that. Like it's just like, I think that you can separate the two and that you should separate the two because that's when you get messy and idolizing bad things i think when you separate the two that's that's the best way to go just in my opinion but from a from a societal standpoint it's where we start getting this entitlement is when you contribute enough to society or to music or to film or to whatever thing then you can be excused for some of the things that you do so in in the r kelly case it was while he was coming up while he was getting bigger in the bill cosby thing we didn't figure out until after a lot of this his really career stuff was done and his legacy was already made that some of the things that started to come out. So it, you, when you think that way, you run the risk of now letting people get away with things because of who they are and what they've done or what they've contributed to their particular area. And so you excuse those things when you do that. And I think that's a more dangerous um, alley to go down when you start doing that because it shouldn't matter as we should, you, you would agree. And you would say, if they've done these things, they need to be uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law because everybody should be, we should treat people, everybody the same, no matter who they are, which is 
the Correct. standard that we typically go by. But then when you say, well, he's done so much and it's Bill Cosby, how can we? And that was the initial reaction when the stuff started to come out was, no, this is Bill Cosby. He can't be guilty of these things. And you, when there were so many of them, then you couldn't sweep it under the rug anymore. And the same thing with R. Kelly. Well, it was just Aaliyah and her parents, blah, 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 blah. But in the, the documentary, it was, well, they changed her birth certificate. They faked the document so he could marry her. So it is, it, it just, you start to walk a very thin line between what's acceptable and what's not. And your societal acceptance of something starts to be based on, well, has he done enough to forgive this thing? Or should we look past this thing because of who this person is? And for the most part, people would say, no, you don't, because you, you start to run into what's acceptable. I mean, look at Kareem Hunt and look at um, what some of the other folks in the NFL have done. Have they, are they a big enough star that we can excuse their domestic violence situations? You, you can't start, for me, you can't start looking at it that way. You've got to say, wrong is wrong, and we're going to have the same um, judgment for everybody and the same standard for everybody, whether you're an all-pro guy um, like a Kareem Hunt or if you're just the, the 53rd guy on the team, you've got to have the same standard for what you're going to accept and what you're not. But I, I get your point. I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I completely – and see, okay, so people are getting confused by this, but I completely agree with that. My thing is I believe you can do that to the person – while keeping the artwork well, around. I, I think that, that I think that's where I believe. I believe you can completely hold the person accountable and should not use it, use their artwork or how great they were to allow them to keep doing it. I believe they should be absolutely punished to the highest degree, but then I don't believe their artwork that their artwork that they've put in should also be held to that same thing. Because I mean, that's just my opinion, especially when they have such a large impact. Cause it's like impossible. Like I, like I said, if Jay-Z did something, it'd just be impossible. It's, you can't just erase Jay Z from history. It's just one okay, so, okay. so, so let, let's say your 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 favorite um, artist in whatever a movie star or whatever came out with something very racist and that you just couldn't stomach that they hate everybody else and they're a um, they're a white supremacist. Let's say then. Do you forgive in that sense? And do you say, well, oh, this guy's made all these movies and, and he's one of the best actors or he's one of the best rappers of all time. Let's say it was Eminem and he's one of your favorite guys. Do you change your opinion and say, oh, but he was a really good rapper, but the person was just a piece of crap. You, you can't just separate those things out because it starts to touch you and affect you in different ways when you, depending on what they do. And so the R. Kelly thing to me is even more repulsive because I have a daughter and it just, it, it, I look at it a little bit differently in those senses. So if it affects you, you might look at it in a different way that this person is just, the art is there and you can look at the art, but you have to tie those things together and you can say he was a wonderful artist, but he was a racist or he was a womanizer or he was a, um, he, he was a rapist, whatever it is. Yeah, I think you. the best you can do is tie them together if you're going to keep around what they do. I don't think that, and this is what Nickelodeon did. They took all of the Cosby shows off the air immediately after the Bill Cosby show, uh, that, when that stuff came out. So it was, well, do you want to forget about it or do you want people to understand this is what he was? And I understand the sensitivity to people who might have been affected and you can't just keep trotting the show out there. But it is art. It is something to it. But you can connect those two things and say – 
here's the full story of he wasn't just a womanizer. He wasn't just a sexual assaulter. He was also this TV dad. Well, here's the other thing, and this is particularly true with people who make music, right, is that a big part of music, at least good music, is the sort of authenticity of the lyrics and the lyricism and the message behind them. And if it turns out that the dude who's or girl who's making that music is actually like a total piece of crap, that sort of takes away from the message that they're trying to get across. Right. Like if like you said, if Eminem came out and it was like, yeah, I'm actually a white supremacist, like not even trying to hide it. That's what I am. Like there'd be a whole lot of his music that you'd be looking at be like the message behind this might have been something different from what I thought it was, you know? Right, and, and, and go to go to R. Kelly and look at Bump and Grind. Well, is Bump and Grind about a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old? Or is um, Your Body's Calling, is that about a teenager, somebody's daughter in, in high school? You think about it as an adult tune, it's fine. But if it's a about a, a little girl in, in high school or in ninth or 10th grade, it means something different. And it's just that much more detestable in that sense. The, the words are exactly the same. The song is exactly the same, but who is it geared toward is something different. Yeah. Cool. If you want to say something else, yeah, I, can, I, I understand, but like, I mean, like, I, I mean, I mean, there's nothing else to really say. I understand, but like I watched uh, my senior year of high school, I watched this huge thing. And this is when it first, like, this is when I first engaged in this kind of argument. In my senior year of high school, I watched the Ray Charles movie with, uh, I believe it was Jamie Foxx who, who, uh, yeah, portrayed him. And, like, Ray Charles, no doubt, has one of the biggest influences in, like, on music in general. But he also was just an awful person. So, like, one of the arguments that my teacher started was, well, should we just, should we throw his music in the garbage and act like it never happened? Or should we understand that, yeah, he had a huge influence and he's one of the best in this in music but he also was just a trash person and like for just talking about ray charles there's just no way that you can possibly just say he never happened and that it just had no impact but i understand you definitely definitely should talk you definitely should understand what they were and if it comes out like this with r kelly it should be a part of the story for sure i just don't think that it should i mean you got i've already voiced my argument no, no, we got you, we i understand got you. but I, I, I just, that's just how I feel about it. It is what it is. All right. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to ask Rob before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think I have any other questions, right. but I do want to say, I do want to say, Rod, I don't know if you, I appreciate you coming on the pod and I don't know if you remember this or not, but Rod, for everybody who's listening, Rod was the first person in Pistons Twitter or just anybody like associated with the Pistons at all to communicate with me. I made a YouTube video yeah, like that. two years ago, I believe. And it was about, five, yep. And it was about five moves that Pistons should make. And Rod, Rod was the first person to ever watch it. He was the first person to comment and he was the first person to interact with me. So like, I think, I think Rod a lot because that kind of jump started me and was like, Hey, if I can get these people to listen and watch, maybe I'm actually doing something here. So I, I appreciate Rod coming on the pod. And I appreciate him like jumpstarting what I've no, done. No, and we need more voices like that, which is why I always try to help folks out who are trying to get started or, or need advice about something or want me to look at their work is I remember when I was in the same spot and I needed somebody and I needed the validation of um, saying, hey, is my work good enough? Right? Can I do this um, as a job? 
and that was a, a tough time and you're always so um you you want to get into it but you don't want to bug people and you don't want to um, put some bad stuff out there so it's just a really difficult time so when you reached out to me in the very beginning i'm like yeah let me at least take a few minutes to look at it and see what i can do to try to help them because you never know who that next guy is going to be with that next big voice and, and some good opinions so i always try to help people out it's not a problem at all all right cool hey rod thanks a lot for coming on this was really really cool i was i think that was awesome no, anytime anytime so, you guys yeah, need anything anytime just let me a lot know. of fun yeah, and I mean, Rod does great work. Honestly, we're utterly spoiled with the beat writers for the Pistons, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we got some really good people working on it, um, which, you know, considering how poorly followed the Pistons are, uh, we're pretty spoiled with that. So thanks a lot for coming on, Rod. Once again, you can find him on Twitter at DET. Uh, let me, what is it again, the rest of it? DET News, Rod yeah, there you go. And he writes for the Detroit News about the Pistons. So read stuff Rod writes and stay beautiful, everybody, and go.